Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 154. I'm Steve Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. And today, back again with the self-proclaimed most hated man in jiu-jitsu, Stefan Casting. Stefan, how are you doing? Uh, Very well. Thank you, Steve. I had a hip replacement five weeks ago, and it's coming along nicely, and I'm beginning to contemplate a return to the mat, so that's exciting. It was really gumming up my jiu-jitsu for the last year. I really had to focus on a very small aspect of jiu-jitsu. And it's getting nice to see that the flexibility in the new hip is now beginning to exceed the flexibility in the remaining natural hip. So that that is a very promising sign. Wow, you bounced back from that pretty fast. I think it's a couple of things. I think it is, well, a good surgeon, right? I mean, <laughs> uh, that's invaluable. I think it's also that I was doing a lot of prehab before And I think it's also that I didn't wait until the very last minute. I think too many people wait for surgeries like that. And then they they have so much degradation, right? The the muscles just atrophy because it hurts so much to move. They're not doing any movement. So then when they finally give in and have the surgery, they're not only coming back from the surgery, but also from years of atrophy. Yeah. So it's a very common story for people to go, man, I wish I'd had it earlier. So I think I got the timing of that right, knock on some wood. And that, yeah, I got it done when I was beginning to become non-functional, but I'd still able to have some strength, have some endurance, have all the uh, the little muscles in the legs still firing properly. And so, yeah, it was a, it has been so far a, a relatively quick return to function. That is awesome. That, I, I am steering clear of jujitsu though, for the time being. It's, it's one thing to go hiking. That's my physio. I'm not going to a physiotherapist. I'm basically hiking and walking and climbing mountains. And it's one thing to do that where it's reasonably controlled, especially if you've got poles and crampons. The odds of having a an unexpected force applied to your leg from an unexpected angle is fairly low. Whereas if you're doing jujitsu, just the nature of the sport, you know, somebody does a leg drag and then slips on you and dislocates your hip. So yep. I'd like to have that, the muscles there rock solid. I'd like to have the bone fused to the metal and that be rock solid. And and so although it feels good enough to train, I think I'm going to wait two months until I do drilling, probably three months until I do the lightest rolling. And all of that gets run past my surgeon first, who I'm going to see in a couple of weeks. Awesome. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the progress. Yeah, I always, I mean, I'm not a physio or a medical specialist, but I always advocate for caution when you're rehabbing an injury. The mm-hmm. last thing you want is to go through a major surgery, rush back too early, and then have to go through another major surgery to undo the damage you did to yourself. So yeah. <laughs> especially with something major, I always think it's better safe than sorry. 
even people who haven't had major surgery, this is such a common story, right? I mean, rib injuries, the golden rule of a rib injury is that you will return to training too fast and you will re-injure the same rib. This mm -hmm. is just, it's inevitable. It is so common. Everybody does it. It's a, it's a lesson that I've learned from minor injuries that I'm now applying to, if you want to call surgery an injury, a fairly major injury. Well, time off the mats aside, one of the things I know that you have been working on is studying the omoplata, which is what yes. I was hoping we could talk about today. Uh, probably a big surprise to the audience that we're not going to be going on a giant anti-conspiracy rant. That would be the obvious thing, but nope, we're going to swerve this time. We're going to talk about nuts and bolts jujitsu techniques. Very exciting. I'm super happy to talk about the omoplata. And yeah, you're right. It is something that I've been focusing on. I've done this a couple other times when I've been injured or when I've been coming back from an injury, just knowing that I have a limited amount of training time or a limited amount of mileage that I can put on a body that I really, really focus on one position or one technique and go deep in it so that all of my training mileage goes towards that one technique or that one position. So that way, at least I, when I get better, when I come out of it, at least I've got that. Right, at least yeah. I'm good at one thing as opposed to crappy at everything because I've been trying to kind of cover a little bit of this, a little bit of guard attacks, a little bit of half guard, a little bit of butterfly guard passing, a little bit of arm bar defense, a little bit of triangle choke attacks. And you're, you're when you spread yourself out and when your body can only handle a certain number of hours of training in a week, which was the case with the hip, right? It would get super sore for the last year, year and a half. When I put in more than a certain number of hours, I basically said, screw it. I'm going to work. I'm going to return to the roots. The very first instructional I ever put out was called Omoplata and the Dynamic Guard. And in, that was like, good Lord, that was like 1973, I think you did that, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, just after I got back from Vietnam. <laughs> and in the interim, I've, I've learned an awful lot more about that position. It was always one of my favorite submissions, one of my favorite attacks. So I, I really just spent all my time focusing on that. It was it's a very valuable deep dive. For me, the omoplata was not always one of my favorite submissions, although it is one of my favorite techniques now. When I started first really applying the omoplata was when I was, I'd say, around brown belt. I had a, a private with my instructor, Don Whitefield, and he said, Steve, you should start doing the omoplata. And I didn't put much thought into it, but I tried and he was right. <laughs> the omoplata was a move that fit very naturally into my game. And it would have been nice, actually, if I had adapted it early on. I remember when I was new to jujitsu, I found the omoplata to be very challenging and counterintuitive because most of the other jujitsu submissions, they have really heavy involvement in the way that you place your hands and you're often facing towards your opponent. Mm -hmm. I remember being a white belt and really struggling with the idea that I had to turn my body 180 to my opponent. All of the other submissions that you work as a white belt, like a cross choke and a, an arm bar or a triangle, you're basically facing your opponent. So for the omoplata, as a white belt, when you're new to this sport, the idea of turning your body 180 degrees to the other way, it can be very disorienting. That probably sounds crazy to people who have trained for a period of time now, especially people playing inversion games. But I remember yes. it felt really radical to me when I first did this, that there was this submission where basically you kind of went 180 to your opponent, where 
where you're facing in a direction that is not necessarily the way that you would want to face. There are also some interesting considerations to the Omoplata that I'm sure we'll get into here, but there, in a lot of ways, it's very different from a lot of the other fundamental jujitsu submissions, and I'm sure we'll get to talk about that soon, but I guess as good a place as any is, why don't you kick it off? Tell me, give me your elevator pitch for the Omoplata, Stefan. Well, I think there's a strong argument to be made that it is the most versatile submission in jiu-jitsu because it's not only a submission in and of itself, and there's a thousand ways to finish it, it's also what I like to call a hub position, or uh, it's it's a there's a thousand ways to get into it, and there's a thousand ways to get out of it. Some of the things it connects to are other submissions. Some of the things it connects to are sweeps. It's It's often a sweep, and it often sets up other sweeps and submissions. If we just go no gi for a moment, if we go no gi upper body submissions from the guard, there's there's probably only five major ones. You've got a guillotine choke, you've got a triangle choke, you've got an arm bar, you've got a kimura, and you've got the omoplata. Yes, there are other ones. You know, you've got the Frank Mir lock, you've, you've got various weird chokes. But when you look at what gets used, those are the main upper body submissions no gi. Now, if you go gi, yes, you've got some collar chokes that you got to add in there. But it's it's one of the big techniques. So you can't really ignore one of the big techniques, right? If if you told me that you'd studied jiu-jitsu for 10 years and you didn't have, I don't know, a wrist lock, you didn't have a good twisting wrist lock attack, I'd say, okay, that, that's kind of forgivable. But if you don't have any knowledge of the omoplata, that's not really forgivable because it's such a major attack. I mean, fundamentally, you're doing the kimura with your legs. And so you're using a fairly strong arm lock, but you're using the strongest part of your body to apply it. So I, I think no game is complete without at least a basic understanding of the omoplata and how it connects through to other positions. I think it's a very valid submission in and of itself. And some people are really good at finishing it as a submission, but even a cursory knowledge of it will allow you to set up the triangle more effectively, will allow you to sweep people more effectively, will allow you to harass an opponent who's not giving you other attacks, especially from your guard, but it's not limited to just a guard attack position or a guard attack submission. And I guess that's one thing that we should talk about is that whole, is it a position, is it a submission? And the answer is yes. It, it is both of those things. For me, that was the breakthrough with the omoplata was understanding that if I'm just thinking of it as a submission, I'm not really maximizing the utility of the omoplata. I think the reason I didn't really adopt it earlier in my game was because I was frustrated by how rarely I could actually submit a person with it. Mm. It felt to me like it just would never happen. It felt to me like if I had someone in my guard and I went for the omoplata, they would either roll or they'd base or something and I wouldn't get the submission. And that kind of, you know, it, it, it makes you feel like, ah, oh, maybe this isn't working as much as I want. But the thing about the omoplata is, yes, it is perhaps true that the submission side of things, at least when you're on the bottom in guard from the omoplata, the odds of getting an omoplata submission from there may not be super high, but the odds of getting a sweep from there or a positional advancement are extremely high. And that to me is the thing about the omoplata that makes it tremendously useful. I encourage people not to think of it as a submission or even as a position, really, but to think of it as a system. It is kind of like the Kimura trap in a lot of ways. You want to think of it that way. With mm -hmm. the Kimura, 
I had a similar problem with Kimura back in the day that Kimura was looked at as just a submission that you either got or you didn't. And that led to this whole myth about how the Kimura is a big man move because it's hard to overpower someone's arm like that if you're small. But then the whole Kimura trap game evolved and people realized you can use this as a threat to chain and positionally advance and eventually get to the back and then you'll get the Kimura. It's a giant, great, bloody handle to move your opponent around and to move yourself around your opponent with. Yes. And the omoplata is the same. It's just slightly different because, of course, the connection is with your legs. You're not using your arms to torque the arm. You're using your legs. But the idea is the same. Even if you don't get the submission, you can use it as an opportunity to lead into better positions and eventually the submission. So once I opened up my eyes to that and realized, okay, I should not look at this thing as just a submission, but rather I should look at it as a whole system that I can integrate into my game, my success rate with this move got way, way higher. And at this point in time, at least from a a sweeping standpoint, the Omoplata is probably my highest percentage sweep from guard in terms of what I realistically hit on people. I think that's fair if you're not an Omoplata specialist. Uh, You said that people typically base or they typically roll, which is true. And if you really want to finish the Omoplata as a submission, there are definitely ways to continue attacking with the Omoplata if the guy bases and if the guy rolls. There's a ton of answers to those, but you need to go a little bit deeper into the submission to know what those are. So I think it's really valid to go at first blush, it's a sweep, right? And you can get, you can do an entire career in jiu-jitsu just using it as a sweep. I think the thing that really helps you turn it into a submission there's there's two or three things that really help turn it into a submission. Number one is breaking posture I, or breaking the guy's alignment, right? To use a mutual friend of ours terminology, Rob Bernacki. If you have an omoplata on me, Steve, and I'm balled up in a turtle and I'm a little bit stronger than you and I'm determined to not let you get my arm, there are ways that you can use that to sweep me. But if you want to turn it into a submission, you have to get me flat. And I think that's the single biggest evolution in my jiu-jitsu game with regards to the omoplata was realizing that you have to get the guy flat. If you can, and the, the most common way to do that, it's not the only way to do that. It's not even necessarily the best way to do that, but the most common way is just to move sideways, move sideways, move sideways. And basically the hand that's closest to me, you're going to grab my hip and you're going to scoot away from me. So I go from that turtle position to kind of lying flat on one side. At that point, I don't have base, I don't have posture, my spine is slightly twisted, and now it's really easy to finish it as a submission. But if you don't break my posture first, the odds of finishing it as a submission go way down. The other thing is that you need to have good answers to when the guy rolls. I mean, the simplest omoplata technique is get the omoplata, the guy rolls, and you scramble to the top, right? And that's that's discouraging if you just want to finish it as a submission. But if the goal is to just go from a not so great position, the guard, to say the top of side control, that's a pretty good exchange, right? You you threatened a submission. The guy freaked out and did a forward somersault to use the most basic rolling escape. And you scramble to the top and now you're pinning him. That's good. You should be totally happy with that. Now, there are ways to do that better. There's ways to get to other positions. There's ways to keep control over his arm. And when I say this is hard to to talk about in a podcast, not using video, but one of the keys of the omoplata is to control the elbow. 
if as you roll, if I can keep a strong control on your elbow and basically keep your arm in position, then I can sit up and I can roll again. And now the difference is we end up in the omoplata, but now your posture is going to be broken or you're typically going to expose your other arm, which allows me to move behind you in sort of an omoplata crucifix or a reverse crucifix type position. And that's pretty easy to finish. So that is one of my favorite things about the omoplata is how you can re-roll the omoplata. Mm. I find this happens a lot. You astutely brought up that one of the biggest challenges to finishing the omoplata as a submission is breaking your opponent's alignment. Specifically, I would say breaking their base. Mm -hmm. Their ability to get up on their feet and their knees and move around and roll is what makes the omoplata hard to deal with. And often, if you are going up a weight class, it can be very hard to break someone down because if they're a lot bigger than you, that's a lot of vertical distance to climb up if you want to break them down. Whereas if you can make them roll, the beauty of that is when they roll and wind up on their back, now they're not on their knees anymore. And if you just re-roll into the omoplata, you're in a much stronger omoplata where they're probably belly down on the ground and they're not turtled up anymore. So that to me was a big breakthrough was chaining it so that rather than going for the omoplata and trying to finish and getting frustrated if I couldn't get it, I would threaten the omoplata. If it didn't work immediately, I'd do an omoplata sweep. And then when I wound up on top, I would just re-roll the omoplata again, which sounds a lot more fancy and complicated than it is. It's actually a very low athleticism movement. I I would say it's far easier to do than a barambolo or something like that. I totally agree. And there's there are only two or three or three or four basic rolling maneuvers. When you watch somebody like Mikey Musumeki or Clark Gracie or Bernardo Faria, you know, guys who have a long track record of finishing the omoplata in competition and in sparring, it's often easy to get intimidated because you just see like rolling and it it looks like this weird three-dimensional, you know, like two cats fighting, right? They roll, 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 flip, roll, roll, flip. And then all of a sudden, boom, the guy's tapping to an omoplata. And it can be really intimidating to go, I have no idea what happened there. This is way beyond me. But there really are only, call them three major roles and a couple of variations that once you learn them in isolation, it's very easy to put them together. Yeah. And if, if you just have somebody show you what those basic roles are, starting from a fairly stable position, uh, you talked about one where, say, you're omoplotting me and I do a forward somersault. And you keep control over my back and you do a forward somersault. So now you, you basically re-roll me. That again, hard to explain in audio format, but very easy to, to see. If you can master that, it, it looks fancy as hell, but it's not really that complicated. Another key position that there's a ton of rolling from is what I call the sitting on the shoulder position. And I think that's the missing key. That's one of the missing keys to the omoplata is that very often, again, if you're omoplotting me and I do a forward somersault and you sit up, you end up in this weird position where the arm that you were attacking is trapped between your thigh and your calf. And it's like a knee mount, except your knee is on the floor and you're facing away from me. And it was when I identified this as a separate position, sort of one of the four or five major stages or positions of the omoplata that it really opened up for me and it really helps make sense the scrambles. So I, I guess I should conceptually how I talk about the omoplata 
is there's a series of stages. Number one is the trigger position. And we'll just talk about the omoplata from the guard because it's the easiest way to explain this. But this exact same concept applies even if you're doing a guard pass and you sit up and, and I decide to omoplata your guard defense. So number one is the trigger position. And that's where, I'll pick the simplest example. I have you in my closed guard and you have your arm outside of my leg. The second that your arm goes outside of my leg, say your hand plants on the floor or I move your hand to the outside of my leg, this means I should probably attack for the omoplata the same way that if you're in my closed guard and you put your arm across my body and your elbow crosses my center line, there's a ton of things I could do. I can sweep you, I can choke you, but the most obvious thing to do is to armbar you, right? You're, you're giving me the armbar on a silver platter. If your arm goes outside of my thigh, you've given me the trigger position for the omoplata. You're giving me the omoplata on a silver platter. Yeah. The second position is when I swing into the omoplata or I, I transition into the omoplata using one of the major entry mechanics, where I have you in the omoplata, but you're all turtled up. You're tightly turtled up. I, I can submit you from here using various sneaky techniques, but it's really hard to finish the basic omoplata from here, unless you're really stiff and I'm, we're roughly equally strong. So that, that's only a way station on the way to the final tap. It's not even a particularly good position, but but I'm better off than I was a step back. The second position is where you're turtled and I have my legs in the basic omoplata configuration, but I'm still nowhere near tapping you by and large. The third position is where I sit up and that can be a big battle. It can be hard to go from having you in the omoplata and my back being flat on the floor to me sitting up beside you. Nothing else has changed. You're still turtled. This can take 30 seconds against a determined opponent. There's different ways to do it. There's different tricks you can use, but it can be a major battle. So if, if you can sit up here and still keep control over your opponent, you're again, you're moving closer to either using the position as a submission or really getting you worried so that now you're going to do something stupid and give me the sweep. The next position is breaking your posture. So if I can drag you sideways or break your posture some other way. Here's, I'm, I'm coming into using old terminology versus using new terminology. I still find breaking your posture is a good shorthand. Really, technically, I should be saying breaking your alignment, breaking your base, and to some extent, your structure. Because as I pull you sideways, so you're now lying on the ribs on one side of your body, I'm also typically pulling your arm out of out of position as well. Your arm was typically in front of your body. When I do what I call breaking your posture, which really means breaking down your base, I typically also pull your arm out of alignment. And that can often twist your spine a little bit. So that's the next position. Then the final position is where I actually swing my legs into, into that 90 degree, 90 degree position. I lean forward to finish after securing some kind of grip on your upper body, whether that's a horse collar and far lapel grip, whether that's coming around your head and your armpit in uh, a harness grip or seatbelt grip, or using some other grip to pull myself forward. So those are the kind of the, the main positions or the way stations on the way from you're in my guard to you're tapping out. In addition to that, though, we need to think about the sitting on the shoulder position as its own kind of adjacent 
major position because you end up in it so often when the other guy is twisting and turning and trying to roll out, trying to counter this way. And you also end up in the sitting on the shoulder position a lot when you're trying to enter into the omoplata, not from the bottom, right? When you're trying to enter into the omoplata, say from, say from side control, say from passing the guard, say from mount, you're very often going to end up in that position. And also when you're doing all that spinning and twisting and rolling, if you don't have an answer for there, the guy's going to get out. So once you identify those major way stations, those major positions, you may not be able to finish your opponent right away, but at least you know if you're getting warmer or colder. Right? Yeah. <laughs> if you've given me the trigger position for the omoplata, you're in my closed guard, say, and you put your hand outside my leg, it's better than I was a second ago, but I'm still a fair distance away from the actual finish. But now, say I've moved through the positions and I've managed to swing my legs into position for the omoplata and I break your posture sideways. See, there I go again with breaking posture. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm going to stop apologizing for that. That's so ingrained in me that when I say breaking posture, I actually mean breaking base, breaking structure and breaking posture to some extent. And I've broken your posture and you're lying flat. Now I'm getting really, you know, in that game of colder, warmer, warmer, warmer. Now I'm really hot. And now it's just a one or two little adjustments away from tapping you out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that where people often get discouraged or stuck with the omoplata is that part where they they get turned around. So they're 180 to mm -hmm. the person, but then that person is maybe turtled up. They're on their knees. They have really good base. And as the person doing the omoplata, you just sort of feel like, well, I guess I'm better off than I was before, but I just don't have this. That's mm -hmm. a position where I feel a lot of people get stuck with the omoplata. One of the strengths of the omoplata, one of the things I love about the position is that it's a very, very low commitment submission from the guard. If you think mm -hmm. about, for example, the, the triangle choke, yes, I would consider this to be a high risk submission from the guard, especially if you're giving up a size disadvantage. Because if you go for a triangle, you're opening up the ability to get bully passed, to get stacked, even to get slammed if it's permitted within the rules. The arm bar as well, I would say is a bit safer, but if you screw it up, you're almost certainly going to wind up giving up side control to your opponent. Yes. Whereas with the omoplata, the likely situation, if you fail, is you're going to wind up kind of beside the guy where you have him in sort of omoplata position, but he's based on his knees or he rolls, in which case you wind up on top. So your likelihood of a positive outcome with the omoplata is very, very high. The other thing, too, is I find that entering into the omoplata is a lot easier if you want to enter into an armbar, generally you have to secure elbow control and you have to somehow get your opponent to cross their arm across their body, which you're not likely to be able to do against someone who's good unless you, unless this is like step 10 of a 10 step technique chain. The triangle, similarly, a good person is going to have very good arm awareness and they're not likely to leave one arm in, one arm out. So you're probably going to have to catch them in a sequence. But I find that in guard, there's a lot of situations where if I just turn my hips around, suddenly I'm in the omoplata. I find often I don't even need to have my opponent put their hand on the floor. Right. Just if they get their arm kind of on the side where I can cup it, I can pivot my hips and then boom, you're in an omoplata position. And now instead of thinking about I got to pass Steve's guard, 
my opponent is thinking about maybe I need to roll and give up side control to get out of this thing, right? Much better outcome for me. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast, this idea of committed techniques and how for some techniques, the worst case scenario is a lot worse than for others. And if for no other reason, I suggest people look into the Oma Plata simply because even if you fail, there's a very good chance you're going to wind up in a better position than you were in before. So I'm a big fan of it for that reason. But you did bring up a very, very common problem that people have, which is, Okay, I turned 180 to my opponent, but he's either turtled up or he's on his knees and I just can't seem to break him down. And right. I find usually that's that is the the tipping point for the omoplata. If you can get past that, you're going to get the submission. If you can't get past that, then you have to do something else. And so the question often becomes, how do you get past that? And this is one of the areas where the omoplata is challenging because you are now in a situation where you're on your back, you're in a supine position and your opponent is postured up and they're probably on their knees and they might even be able to do a running man sprint to get out. So your opponent has way better base than you. Yes, you have their arm entangled and they're not able to face you, but they do still have really good base. So you've got to break them down from a position where you have inferior base And you have to be tricky to do that. You already brought up some of the key details, some of the the critical control points here. You want to make sure, for example, that you maintain control of their elbow all the way through. If you lose the elbow, you lose the omoplata. And you basically, you need to bail. If you are no longer able to control the elbow, that is sort of the weak link in the chain. If that fails, if you just have the wrist, you're better off just bailing on the omoplata. The, The exception there is if the guy's wearing a gi. If the guy's wearing a gi and you keep wrist control, kind of like a spider guard grip, you can sometimes recover it. But only if you're putting pressure on the elbow, right? Only yes. if you're using yeah. the gi grip to basically use your your hamstring to punch the elbow down to the floor. So you're, yes. it's still controlling the elbow. It's just that your grip is, uh, it's a proxy grip now, right? You're grabbing yes. onto their sleeve instead of onto their actual elbow itself. But the idea is you got to punch that elbow down. If they can slip that elbow out, then there is no submission, right? 100% agreed. Yeah. Another thing I would point out is, and and it took me a long time to figure this one out, you can't let them turn their head into the inside. A common poor way to escape the omoplata is the forward somersault roll that we talked about earlier. That's the way that I was taught to get out of this thing back when I, when it was 2008 and jujitsu was still, you know, it is, I guess not really at the peak of development that it is now, but now that would be considered kind of a, a rookie escape to try to do. Because like you said, the problem is if you do a forward facing roll your opponent is going to either re-roll right into the omoplata or they're going to come up in that shoulder sit position, both of which are not good. So what I was taught was if you actually want to roll out of the omoplata and not get murdered on the way, you need to do an inside roll. So you're not doing a straight roll over your shoulders. You're basically rolling over one shoulder and you're trying to look towards your opponent. And if you do that, you spin out and you normally wind up coming up on top in their guard, which is way better than the alternative. So something that I always try and do in the when I'm holding someone in the omoplata is I try to keep their head away. I try to frame against their head. I never want their head to be able to turn towards me. And because I'm an asshole, the way I normally do this is when I'm omoplataing someone, I basically just use my foot and I drive it into their neck <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so they can't turn back towards me. I, I have personally found that as long as I can keep my opponent from turning towards me, I I'm, feel like I'm okay. I feel like I can kind of still control the position to some degree. So for me, that was a big revelation that, okay, you can't let the guy turn back towards you. Otherwise, you kind of lose the advantage of the omoplata, which is that he can't face you. 
So there are so many places that we could go here, Steve. Let me just jump back in time a little bit when you're talking about getting stuck. Basically, you've managed to turn 180 degrees. You're in what I would call the second position in the sequence where you're flat yep. on your back, your opponent's beside you, and he's all based out and he's just not going to give it to you. So there are a couple of answers there. The first is just follow the sequence. The next step is to sit up. The next step is to sit up. So try to sit up. And you can't always do it. And like I said, sometimes it's a real battle. But if you know that's the next thing that you're supposed to do, it's not just an option, it's the main option, then you're going to fight for it more determinedly. It's like saying to defend your guard, you should grip fight. Don't let the other guy get a grip and you get your own grip, right? This is pretty much accepted mm -hmm. wisdom now. I think there's a lot of wisdom there. Nobody ever said it's going to be easy. Nobody ever said, oh yeah, you just go out and you get your grip and you stop your opponent from getting, everybody says it's going to be a fight. Yeah. So sitting up when you're beside your opponent, you're in that, what you call 180 degrees to your opponent, what I would call step two. The next step can be difficult. And if you know it's going to be difficult, well, you know, it's difficult, but it's a huge step, right? It's like to get to the top of Everest, you have to, I don't know, cross the Kumbu ice field. Nobody ever said that was going to be easy. There's a difficult parts of every journey, and that's the difficult part of the journey. But let's say you just can't do it. The guy's just 100% determined. He's posturing back strongly to keep your upper back on the ground. Well, then there's a whole bunch of other things you can do. I mean, one of the fanciest ones, but it really works, is to try and kick your legs forward. Right? If you can kind of lift your legs up, keeping your ankles crossed, keeping your legs straight and swing them forward like you're trying to like your heels are a hammer and you're trying to drive a stubborn nail into a piece of wood you're going to be kicking forward that generates a ton of momentum and can very often break your opponent's posture if it doesn't break his posture it's because he's going to be pushing backwards he's going to be trying to reestablish sort of the more, more vertical spine position so you do this a few times then you do this and as he straightens up you put your head to the outside and you do a backward somersault while keeping control of his elbow. So basically he's posturing backwards so strongly that all you need to do is give him a slight push backwards and he's going to fall backwards and you end up on the sitting on the shoulder position. So there are moves like that that you can do to take advantage of the guy not wanting to let you sit up. And then there's fancier versions where you start going to leg locks or you start going to arm locking the... Uh, the arm that you have trapped, you bring your outside leg over his body and then underneath his armpit and across his belly. And you start extracting that arm in an arm bar, sort of a belly, almost a belly down style of arm bar. Or there's chokes you can go to. There, there are a ton of options to get around that position, but it's super frustrating if you don't know what those options are. Yeah. So you were talking about the rookie escape, the forward somersault versus the inward facing somersault. And because I'm crude, I consider it that you're studying the guy's ass, right? You're turning. You're, <laughs> Basically. You're, you're, first, you're staring at the mat. Now you turn your face, so you're looking right at his butt cheek. And then you roll over that shoulder. I actually call that the reverse hitchhiker escape. Interesting. If you're familiar with a hitchhiker escape from the armbar, where you turn your arm, you look away, and you bridge up, and you run your legs around, if you run that in exact reverse... That's the escape from the omoplata. The hitchhiker escape from the armbar is exactly the move that you're describing, escaping from the omoplata, 
if you played that tape in reverse. So I call it the reverse hitchhiker escape. Now there's a ton of counters to that counter, right? Just this is the way jujitsu always works. Somebody develops a technique. Oh my God, this technique is inescapable. Then people find defenses and counters to it. Oh my God, this technique doesn't work anymore. You know, Kini Cornelius has declared the Barambolo dead. And then people go and they find counters to the counter or other follow-ups dismantle the counter and you end up with a counter to the counter to the counter to the counter. So uh, what am I, I've got several techniques that I really like against the reverse hitchhiker escape or the, you called it the inside roll, Steve? Yeah. Yeah, against the inside roll. One of the simplest ones, actually, I'll give you one for gi and I'll give you one for no gi. If we're going no gi, it's going to be tough to keep control of the guy's arm while he does that roll. But if you get with a partner and you let him do that inside roll or the reverse hitchhiker roll five times, you'll notice that his head almost always ends up in the exact same position. You end up in some kind of butterfly guard type position with the guy's head reasonably low and right between your knees. If you know that's where his head is going to be, then this is like, I'm not a hunter, but imagine if we were going hunting and I said, Steve, we're going to get your rifle, we're going to get your 30-06, and we're going to set it up here at this exact angle. And at 8.05 a.m. tomorrow morning, a deer is going to come by and walk right in front of that rifle. All you need to do is pull the trigger. That would be pretty convenient for hunting. So to take this back to the omoplata, if I see you start doing a reverse hitchhiker roll, or the inside roll as you call it, I know that like a half second later, your head is going to be in a certain position. So what I'm going to do, or what I'm going to try to do, is the hand that was on the side, the hand that was controlling your elbow, abandons that and starts coming up to cup the back of your head and feeding it down into the guillotine position. The consequence of escaping the omoplata like that is to stick your head into a position where it's very easy for me to attack with the guillotine. So that's the no-gi version. The gi version that I really like because it's fancy and it's one of the best kinds of fancy. It's fancy, but it's not nearly as hard as it looks, right? There, there's stuff that's hard to do that doesn't look fancy and there's stuff that's fancy that's not hard to do. So this is the fancy, but not hard to do. If I can just keep control of your, your wrist by that proxy control on your sleeve, as you throw yourself forward into that roll, I sit up. As you start coming up out of that roll, I throw myself to the side and spin underneath that arm. And by using that, uh, there's a very common entry into the omoplata and the gi. It's used a lot in spider guard where you spin underneath the guy's arm. You know, you start with, say, a lasso grip and you off balance him and then you spin underneath there and end up in the omoplata. It's using that same spinning motion. So it dovetails together beautifully. All I need to do is keep control of that sleeve. As you throw yourself forward, I sit up. I've got to be a half beat ahead of you. As you start coming up, I throw myself down and underneath you and I spin and it, it looks fantastic and it's way easier to do than it looks. I've gotten white belts with one stripe to become fairly proficient at that move. Why huh. was I teaching a white belt with one stripe this move? <laughs> it's because it amused me and it made it made them feel good. Yes, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna suggest that they go out there and you know try this in their first competition, but it's more a proof of concept. If if they can do it, and you know, I'm 52 years old, I'm not nearly as flexible as I used to be. If I find this easy to do, then I'm gonna sit go out on a limb and say that most people 
properly taught can do stuff like that. So again, it's it's not to disparage that escape. It is one of my favorite escapes. But just like every escape, there are answers. Yes. Uh, one of my, my favorite escape is probably to cartwheel over the guy. If you hit an omoplata on me, I can plant my hand, plant my head, and jump over your body, and you don't do anything, you're going to end up severely cross-faced and in a terrible position. Yes. In my opinion, that cartwheel over the top is the worst case scenario for the person doing the omoplata because the other Mm -hmm. escapes usually result in, at best, you actually wind up in a better position. We talked about the forward roll. If someone does that, it's a positional advancement for the person doing the omoplata. Other escapes, like trying to do a running man, you're going to wind up in a neutral position. But if someone is able to cartwheel over you to the other side, then now you are on bottom side control. So part of my strategy when I'm doing the omoplata, there's two things I specifically want to block. One of them is the inside roll. What I actually do to to deal with the inside roll is I will, like I mentioned, I will put the, the heel of my omoplata-ing leg, the ones that I'm threading through his uh, shoulder, I put the heel of that right against his neck, and then I bring my other leg up, and I kick my legs out. You talked about how a common way to deal with the omoplata to make it work is you kick your legs out to kind of get some momentum and swing up and down. I find that that has a ceiling in terms of how effective it can be depending on the strength and size of your opponent. Mm -hmm. But what I do is I angle a bit, and instead, when I kick my legs out, I kick the heels of my feet into my opponent's jaw. Not not like I'm actually kicking him, but I'm using my feet as a frame to turn his head away. And I will sometimes even lift my butt off the ground while I'm doing it, just so that I can create kind of like a spine frame. And then they can't come anywhere near me. And that kills the ability to inside roll. Also makes it much harder for them to stand up. Yes, yes, that in which I want to avoid. But the other thing that you always have to be mindful of is the hop over or, or a cartwheel. That is the most dangerous thing. And a mistake that a lot of people make, myself included, is they're so focused on on thinking about the person's top side and how they're going to lock that omoplata that they forget about their legs. And if those legs just hop over your head, then now you're in bottom side control. Additionally, if your opponent is not the nicest person, they can just knee ride your face. And I, you know, I've shown up black and bruised to work the next day because I was doing an omoplata on the bottom and my opponent just got up and basically stood on my face, which is a, a valid way to get out of it, right? If they want to make base. So I always advise that if people are going for an omoplata, one of the predictable responses will be that your opponent may get up on their feet and they may try to hop over you to the other side, or they may try to kneel on you. And you have to be ready for that. Mm -hmm. And you talked earlier about how one of the common ways you deal with this is you use your inside arm to sort of frame against their body so they can't get too close. That's generally my favorite thing to do. I used to reach behind and try to actually grab and control the leg but i find it just it goes sideways a lot of the time i prefer to just have my forearm up and try to just shield and block against the their body and their legs so that if they go for the hop they can't get it because that to me is one of the most threatening outcomes of failing the omoplata with every technique you can block it early medium or late like armbar from the guard you're armbarring me from the guard the early answer is don't let my elbow cross center line right like don't don't give it you know doctor doctor it hurts when i do this don't do that. That's an er, that's a prevention. The next timing to counter the armbar from guard is as you're swinging your leg into place, right? As you're swinging your leg into place, just to pick a really simple counter, if while you're swinging your leg into place, I can pull my elbow out, that's, that's a totally valid counter. It's gotten a lot of people out of the armbar. The late counter is where you've 
gotten the armbar from guard and now you're applying the armbar from guard, what can I do at this point? And of course, the later you go, the less your chances are. It's way better to stop something from happening or to stop it as it's happening than to wait until it's fully applied and then try and fight your way out. Unless you're drilling something specifically, you know, trying to practice your late stage escapes. Similarly, with the omoplata, one of the most important things you can do is sit up and get your arm over your opponent's back. So I think this is an opportunity that a lot of people miss. As they're applying the omoplata, if they can even just get up on their outside elbow and get their hand over the guy's back, then that cuts down, well, that basically eliminates the cartwheel, right? So step one is prevention. How do you prevent? Get your arm over the guy's back. Step two is as the guy's jumping, if you can recognize this, if you can take the hand that's on the side of the guy's, that's towards the guy's body on between you and your opponent's body, because you can't always get your hand over the guy's back, depending on what grip you use to set it up. But now you recognize that he's jumping. You have a very brief but powerful opportunity. That's basically to shoot your hand towards the sky, right? Just finger spear the ceiling. If you can catch his ribs, if you can catch his thigh, if you can catch his knee, then the momentum of him jumping over you is going to carry you over and you're going to end up in the sitting on the shoulder position. The late stage escape is, you know, I like it because it's, again, that fancy and easy thing. And this is really only something I've discovered in the last two years is as he jumps over while he's in midair, if you start inverting and doing that, again, that basic lasso spin from spider guard, as, as he's jumping over, if you start inverting and spinning, he never actually gets to the other side and you're going to end up in the omoplata again. The advantage there is when the guy jumps over you, he's looking for a cross face, right? If, if, if I'm omoplating you and you jump over, one hand is trapped between my legs, your other hand is going to come and cross face the living crap out of me as you extract your arm. If as you're jumping over, I start inverting and spinning underneath you, you never actually see my face. There's nothing for you to cross face. And so that's kind of a late stage escape that I really like just because it's beautiful, right? It, it's one of those things where it puts the art back into martial art. That's an interesting idea. I It never occurred to me if the person's trying to hop over to the other side to basically spin with them like that. I'll have to play around with that because I can see technically how that would be effective. Well, when I release my Omoplata 2.0, I will send you a preliminary copy and I'll point you right in the, You don't have to watch the whole thing, but you can definitely go check out that one section. The, I have worked it in no gi. It's one of those things where it's mostly gi, huh. but if you've got half decent control over his elbow and you're not super sweaty, that you can even pull it off in no gi, and at the very least... It's, it's going to put you into this kind of a spinning inversion kind of situation where there's a certain amount of dynamic energy going and it's, you've, you've changed the terms of the, of the situation enough that it's not guaranteed that you're going to end up inside control, twisted up with a powerful cross face. Because that sucks, right? That's like, that, you know, start on the bottom of side control with your spine twisted, with your legs twisted one way and your jaw being cranked your neck being twisted the other way because somebody's got turned your jaw into a giant lever to turn your head that's not anybody's idea of a good time 
So, you know, I'll give you a choice. We'll start inside control with your legs twisted one way and your head twisted the other way and a powerful cross face, or with you spinning into a situation where you may be able to regard and if you're lucky, get the omoplata. I, I would think most people would go for option two. I'll take what's behind door number two, please. So there's something I want to ask you about here. You talked about how one of the ways to shut down your opponent trying to cartwheel or roll is you get up and you reach your arm over top of them. Mm -hmm. And ideally, usually you're trying to cup into their far lat or you're grabbing onto the fabric if it's ski. This Mm -hmm. is an extremely common omoplata strategy. And it's certainly something that I was taught. I never do this anymore at all. And I'll tell you why. There was a time when I was sparring with a guy, got him in an omoplata, much larger guy than me. I went and I reached over him and he basically just got up and just spiked me right on the back of my head. (laughs) And I felt Mm. every vertebrae in my neck pop. I'm probably lucky I'm not in a wheelchair after that. And if you want to align that to what we've talked about on the show before, it's something that I call body tethering. You know, if you are, if your opponent is big and strong and you reach up and you grab over top of them, you are now tethering yourself to them. So you're giving them some control of where your body goes. Now that's okay if they don't have any base. That's okay if you've already gotten into the process of breaking them down or if you're just way too big and strong for them to realistically do anything. But a lot of the time, the problem that can happen is if your opponent uses their base to posture up, it can send you going backwards. So I actually don't ever do that reach across anymore. What I do now, and I'm going to sound like such an asshole after this podcast, I've talked about kicking people in the face. What I do now, instead of trying to reach over their body, is I will, I will lift up my inside arm and I'll kind of put it against their, the top of their ribs, like sort of like between the side of their ribs and their back kind of, and their spine, kind of like a 45 degree angle. And I will just dig my elbow into their ribs <laughs> and I will use that pressure. I will basically use my elbow as a, as a point of base to lift my body up. So rather than reaching across my opponent and, and using their body to lift myself up, I basically take my hand and you know how when you, you know, the fist pump you do and you go, yes, mm-hmm. I basically do that, except I take the, the point of my elbow and I drive it into the backside of the ribs and lift myself off the ground that way. And I find if you do that, it still shuts down their ability to roll. It also shuts down their ability to hop over. And when you do that, you're not actually tethered to your opponent. So there isn't really a risk of them doing that crap where they just pick you up and spike you on the back of your neck. So now that said, I haven't done an, I haven't done a quality test on this. It's just something I do and have had luck with it, but I haven't seen anyone at a, at a super high level performer do this. And I'd love to know if anyone else out there does that variant instead of reaching over, because I found that to be very effective and much safer for me. Yeah. I think there's a huge danger anytime your opponent stands up. I mean, to take it back to self-defense, if somebody's standing, if somebody can pick you up and slam you, that's a really bad day. If somebody can stand up and just pull their arm out, they can stomp you. Uh, If somebody can stand up in the omoplata, they can just pull their arm out. And standing up and basically pulling your arm out is a totally valid counter. So yeah, your opponent standing up is a valid concern. It takes us right back to the triangle choke. If you have a triangle choke, you have to, you do the old school triangle choke where you stay right in front of him, you just pull the guy's head down. If he's strong, if you're dealing with like a Quentin Jackson kind kind of guy, he's gonna stand up and slam you. And it's a really bad day. So you have to 
either be prepared to underhook his leg in the case of the triangle or underhook his arm, get to 90 degrees. And if the guy's just superhumanly strong and starts standing up, you abandon ship, right? Better to go to open guard than to, you know, successfully keep your triangle closed when the guy stands up. Same's true for close guard. It's one thing to have the guy stand up when you have him in close guard, when you're in a jiu-jitsu tournament with mats and a referee who will disqualify the other guy if he does a diving spike on you. It's quite another thing to have the close guard on a guy on concrete or even hard floors or in a tournament format where you are allowed to slam somebody. And at that point, just letting the guy stand up with you tethered to him is just not an option. I'll say that if you do the hand over the back thing, you do have to be prepared to let it go. But I don't know, say I do a, an entry into the omoplata on you and I sit up. If I come up on my outside elbow and drape my arm across your back to control your hips, my my own hips are angled outwards and my legs are typically angled inwards a little bit, which moves my weight out on your arm as opposed to keeping my weight real close to you right? As opposed to like trying to deadlift a dumbbell that's right underneath you. It's like trying to deadlift a dumbbell that you have to keep a foot or two away from you. And your strength to pick people up is much less. It's it's a little bit similar, I think, to what you like to do with your feet to keep your feet framing on the guy's head. Because yeah. what that does is it moves the weight away from him a little bit. And now he's trying to pick you up in an awkward position. Yeah, ideally you want to be sitting on their their elbow because yeah. that forces their arm into that rotational twist and it also means that your weight is far enough away from them that they can't realistically deadlift you whereas if you're in close to them and your weight is on top of their shoulder as long as they've got their knees under them there's not a lot stopping them from just posturing back up and then you're going to go with them and so now you're not just fighting their arm you're fighting the power of their core as well so a lot of the time one of the tricks to the omoplata it feels like you probably want to be tighter but actually you're better off scooching out a bit and resting on their elbow rather than trying to rest on top of their shoulder yeah i think that's fair and the other like you need answers for the guy standing right like there yeah. for every technique for every attack it's well worth figuring out what the most common counters to that are and then having counters to that counter. So some of the most common counters are the guy hiding his arm, the guy just balling up, the guy trying to step over you, the guy trying to kneel on you, the guy trying to do a regular forward roll, the guy trying to do a head inside roll, the guy trying to post one leg up, the guy trying to sit over top of you, kind of a reverse mount, and the guy standing up. You need answers to the guy standing up. If if you have the situational awareness, usually when the guy stands up, there's a sequence. He posts his hand. He's posts his hand that you're not attacking. Then he posts his outside leg. And then he either postures up or comes directly to his feet. So when he posts his far hand on the ground, he's giving you a gift. He's giving you the chance to snake your outside foot under that armpit and apply just a terrible submission, a terrible variation of the omoplata that my friend Elliot Baev calls the rack. And it's, it's commonly used by all the high-level omoplata guys out there. When he posts his leg, say you, say you missed the opportunity to snake your outside instep underneath his armpit as he posts his hand. The next thing that's going to come is he's going to post his outside foot. Right? He's, he, it's hard for him to go from both knees on the ground and jump up to both feet on the ground if, if you 
If you can do that, you're fighting Bob Sapp. And uh, it's just going to be nothing but pain for 15 minutes until he gasses out. So I don't have any uh, great advice against fighting Bob Sapp other than make him chase you and get tired. And don't get caught because he's probably pretty fast in the short distances having played football. Uh, that, is, that is assuming that Bob Sapp is still alive and doing, <laughs> doing, doing commercials in Japan. So there you go, everyone. There is the Bob Sapp playbook yeah. in case you ever wind up in an MMA fight or jujitsu yeah. exhibition against him. This is what you have to do. Still my favorite MMA fight of all time. <laughs> Nogueira versus Bob Sapp. Oh, my God. He should have broken. Given how many times Bob Sapp tried to murder him, he should have broken off his arm and taken it home and put it, mounted it like a fishing trophy above his fireplace. Uh, right. So the guy posts his arm. The guy posts his hand to stand up. You don't quite catch that. The next thing that comes, he's going to post his leg. That gives you the opportunity to snake that outside foot underneath his knee. Now we're getting to a really ugly position, one that uh, Clark Gracie has used many times to finish, where you're applying the rack on the leg. Even when the guy stands up with both legs, before he's fully straightened up, you can do that, the rack against the knee. Just if anyone knows what I'm talking about here, just be really careful here, especially when you're doing against a training partner. Because if the guy falls backwards like he's going to, he can tear his shoulder just to pieces. So you have to be prepared to really loosen that submission as the guy falls. Because the intent is to make him fall backwards on his ass. If you maintain that position, you will rip his shoulder to kingdom come. That's actually worth talking about as one of the main concerns around the Plata. With a lot of other jujitsu submissions, you're... You're really using your hands to steer the ship. If you go for an arm bar, you've got to be really out of control in order to accidentally hurt someone with it, because so much of the control comes down to the fine motor movement and the dexterity of your hands. You And you usually have a, a pretty good inkling as to whether it's safe or not. Uh, the Kimura as well. The Kimura is a little bit riskier because there just isn't that much muscle that your opponent can use at that rotation to, to brace against the pressure. But you're still using your hands, so you can feel it. You can feel, okay, this is getting tight. The Omoplata can be dangerous because you are, you're not even really using your legs. You're using your legs to immobilize the arm. But the thing that makes the Omoplata work is you're using your core. You're putting your entire body weight on top of your opponent's shoulder and twisting it. And it's very hard to feel if they're actually going to tap or not. So because you can't feel, you just don't have that level of sensitivity. It could be loose or your opponent's shoulder could be about to go. So when you're doing the homoplata, you kind of have to have a standard of care for your opponent, especially if it's in the gym, since it is so hard to know exactly how tight it is. And so I always advise that when when you get to that point where your opponent is belly down and they're not on their knees anymore. Yeah. You've got the omoplata at that point. It's very unlikely your opponent will escape. So when you get up and start leaning forward, just you always want to be very, very slow yeah. and deliberate about doing that. If you just rock it forward, you could put your opponent in the hospital. So it's just something to understand. You can't feel the danger when you're the person applying the omoplata like you can with other submissions. So just be extremely careful is what I always tell people. You, you can once you become more familiar with it, but you know, applying a that's kind of a, I don't know, call it a brown belt, black belt level of sensitivity because you've been using your legs for freaking 10 years, 20 years to apply submissions. You you do develop that sensitivity eventually. 
but I find I still don't really have it, honestly. I mean, I, I know what the range of motion is, so I know when you're going past the safe point. But I find if I'm basically using my hip to drive forward and yeah. my whole body weight is on the shoulder, it's very hard to feel if it's really tight or not for the other person. I think some of that is also just people vary tremendously in their flexibility. Yes. I was doing a bunch of filming with Richie Yip right after he'd had a, uh, a great weight training session. So he was super tight through the shoulder. And so ah. it was uh, basically, it was actually difficult to show some of the finishes because he was so tight. We actually had to go back and yeah. refilm a week later after he'd A, not done heavy weight training of his upper body the day before and B, done a bunch of stretching. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, the, but there, there's also when I'm applying the omoplata for real, I would like to ideally get a grip either around the guy's head around the head and the armpit in like a seatbelt or a harness and just really lock on to the upper body. Yes. And now every amount, every ounce of force, I, every ounce, every bit of force that I generate with my legs goes directly into his shoulder. But if we're training omoplata, I usually don't typically do that. We'll get into the position that maybe I'll put my hand on your back or maybe your hand on your hip and I'll just lift my legs up a little bit slowly, gently until I get the tap. So it is possible to develop bad habits, right? I, if, I, if I was really determined to like, if I if it was going to be fighting in some, I don't know, Abu Dhabi super fight next week, I probably wouldn't train the omoplata gently and kindly on my opponents or my training partners because I wouldn't want to develop that, you know, gentle basing on your opponent and slowly lifting up. But I think it's essential. It's the same way that we don't train heel hooks the same way that we apply heel hooks, right? If... If I wake up and I'm in the octagon and I've got a heel hook fully applied and I'm bleeding from my eyeballs, uh, I'm just going to bridge and pull like crazy and try and break that guy's leg. If we're rolling in the gym, nine times out of 10, if I get the heel hook grip, that's it. That's, that's as far as I'm going to go in training. I don't feel the need to, you know, to see if it works. I realize that at a higher level as you're getting ready to go against better and better and more flexible people, you will need to to experiment with that force generation aspect of it. But if I'm training with some, I don't know, blue belt, purple belt, even a, just a black belt, we're just having fun. If I get to the heel hook, man, that's that's 90% of the way there, except if I'm going to be going against Coyotera or one of the Meow brothers. But that's an entirely separate problem. You know, for 90% of the training, you're just going to get to the position and then apply the actual finish in a slightly unrealistic way or or not apply the finish at all. That's an aspect of the omoplata that people don't talk about. Say you, I don't know, you catch an intruder in your house, right? I, I, I am a jiu-jitsu guy. I enjoy the martial sport aspects, but I think fundamentally jiu-jitsu is a martial art. And that means knowing how to use your stuff in a real life context. Maybe you don't have to, you know, train it that way every day. You don't have to focus on just like in the street, we're just gonna, you know, get to the back and then we're gonna eye gouge him and bite his ears off and then take the ears and force him down his throat and choke him that like, come on, give me a break. But if you did have to hold somebody for half an hour while the cops get there, because it's a busy night, I think it's pretty hard to find a better position to hold somebody I than would the plata. Right? Yeah. Especially controlling the forearm. Man, he's not going to be able to use his hands to get at any kind of weapon. He's not going to be able to like 
grab your groin or eye gouge you or scratch you or bite you. And I, I can hold somebody in omoplata for half an hour without breaking a sweat. So uh, I think to bring this back, you know, we've been talking about spinning lasso guard inversion counters to people cartwheeling over because that's fun and that's beautiful and it is practical. But at a very fundamental level, I think it's a really important for, position for self-defense. My first exposure to the omoplata was not in jiu-jitsu. My first exposure to omoplata was in Indonesian silat, where you're not really sparring it, but you know you, you enter against a punch, you hit him here, you hit him there, you take him down with a twisting head throw, say a puter kapala, and then you manipulate him into an essentially an omoplata-type position with his arm around his back. And from there, you would, I don't know, simulate striking the neck. And when I learned this in Indonesian silat from Danny Nasanto, and also from a guy called Louis Lindo, I was, was also doing jiu-jitsu. And I was like, man, I bet you could use this in jiu-jitsu. And I thought I had discovered the omoplata. I was like, <laughs> I've got this brand new technique that nobody's ever used in jiu-jitsu. And I started hitting it in jiu-jitsu. And I was like super stoked with myself. Like, yes, I've discovered a new technique. And then somebody sent me a tape. I forget what it was. It wasn't the Brasileiros, but it was some big jiu-jitsu competition in the 90s in Brazil. I think Fabio Jorgel was in it. And like two separate guys hit the omoplata. I was like, shit, <laughs> they already know about this. So I discovered it. I imported it for myself and discovered it for myself from Indonesian Silat, not knowing that Brazilian jiu-jitsu had already discovered it. And when you go back through some of the older judo books, you do see it. Uh, you do yeah, find yeah. it, I think, in uh, the Vital Judo books, which I finally got a hold of the, 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 the Newaza, the ground copy of it. It's got omoplatas in there. So the Japanese knew about this long before the Brazilians, and the Brazilians knew about this long before Stefan Kesting. <laughs> well, you could still claim ownership of it, right? I mean, you could call it like the, the Kesting crush or something. Might as well draw some more heat on the internet, right? Just claim you invented the omoplata. <laughs> That'll do it for sure. <laughs> well, on, on my, uh, we were going to keep this apolitical, but on my Twitter handle, I recently changed it to the inventor of the heel hook as a, <laughs> as a shot against uh, Robert uh, R.W. Malone, who claims to have discovered uh, mRNA vaccines. Oh, it's like, boy. No, no, there's <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people who are involved in the discovery of mRNA vaccines, and there's people who have a way better claim than you do. So I, I thought it was tremendously funny to put that on my Twitter, you know, the inventor of the heel hook. Give me a break. You know, yes, I, I did have something to do with the popularization of the heel hook. I will give myself that credit because I think when you go back into early jiu-jitsu in the early 2000s, you know, I think people like Eric Paulson did really bring the heel hook to the attention of the majority of people. But, you know, I did release a leg lock instructional back in the day that showed people the heel hook. So maybe I... In that era, maybe 1% of the people who are using the heel hook got got it from me. So I'll take 1% of the credit and just explode it up to the inventor of the heel hook. I like how you've been doing this for so long that you can find a lot of your instructionals on VHS. That blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, my first five, six. I've survived so many uh, format transitions over the last, call it, good Lord, 19 years. Like I started with VHS, then like, oh my God, this DVD thing doesn't look like it's just a fad. Now we'll move to DVD. Now we'll move to online streaming. Now we'll move to uh, app format. So unfortunately right now, DVD still hasn't gone away. People Which blows still my like, mind. 
I think it's people want something physical. They want to own something. Yes. So I find that when I'm selling instructionals, that a very popular option is to, you know, get it right now on digital streaming and get the DVD. I make that quite an affordable dual option. That way you've got something on your shelf. And if that's how people want it, right, at the day that the internet goes out, they sell their DVD player or they have an old computer that's got a DVD slot, they can watch it. And and I I sympathize with it. I sympathize with wanting to have something physical. I, I, I have a bunch of books on my Kindle. But man, do I have a lot more physical books on you know, a whole bunch of bookshelves in not quite every room of the house, but I don't know how many rooms my house has. Call it 10. There's probably books in eight of them. You know, it's funny. I think I have a whole pile of Stefan Kesting instructionals on DVD that I've never actually used because I bought them thinking, well, I'm not going to watch them on DVD, but... I can just like rip them and save the file on a computer and then I can watch them digitally. And then I realized, fuck, I don't have a DVD player at all that I can rip this with. So I went and bought them again. Oh, <laughs> digital no. version this okay. Time. <laughs> Steve, it's I think wrong. at this point we've been on each other's podcast enough that, uh, that I will send you my next instructional. This was uh, like so 10 years ago. Don't worry okay. about it. I, I think I may, I may have even liquidated those and I just have the digital versions now. But man, this was a great talk. You know, we didn't even get into the best application of the Omoplata, which is its ability to chain into professional wrestling techniques, of which there are many. Too bad we didn't, because of course, you, you know that there is nothing I love more than tapping some blue belt with a pro wrestling hold. That is, in my opinion, the highest expression of jujitsu is when you <laughs> tap someone with a submission that isn't even a real submission. But yes, there there is a whole world of like pro wrestling attacks you can do from the Omoplata if anyone out there is interested. It is funny how real MMA and real jujitsu is making slow inroads into professional <laughs> wrestling. I, I mean, it's been, it's been part of Japanese pro wrestling for a long time. And a lot of, you know, like Sakuraba went back and forth seamlessly between pro wrestling and fighting some of the toughest guys in the world. You know, like, okay, you got a pro wrestling match today and tomorrow you're going to get stomped by Vanderlei Silva for the fifth time. So it's not surprising from Japanese pro wrestling, but you're beginning to see it in Western pro wrestling as well, at least according to my Twitter feed, because I don't spend a lot of time watching pro wrestling. It is true. It is true. Right now, a whole bunch of MMA fighters, including Paige Van Sant and Junior Dos Santos and um, even Jorge Masvidal, they're all doing a thing in pro wrestling at the moment. Like it's the, the next big thing. And it makes sense, right? Because if you are if you're past your athletic prime to the point where you can be realistically competitive in a real match, but you still have enough in the gas tank that you can go and move your body effectively. And especially if you're into the showmanship aspect of this I can totally get why you would transition out of MMA into pro wrestling. And I've talked to so many pro wrestlers whose bodies are just so torn up by pro wrestling. I'm not sure that's a good idea. <laughs> I think people think, oh, it's fake, so it must be easy. No, no, you you will wind up hurting for the rest of your life. Watch a Dark Side of the Ring or one of those shows where they talk about the real life stories behind pro wrestlers. And man, it is uh, it is not a pleasant outcome at the end of the day for the vast majority of them, I would think. What was it, the movie with Mickey Rourke, uh, oh, The Wrestler? Boy. Yeah, that, that was a is, rough one. That's a fantastic movie. Highly that recommended. Is, could Might as well be a documentary. Yeah. I'm going to take it as a documentary. 
I am waiting for a jujitsu style movie like The Wrestler, like a, a high production, high quality drama about a jujitsu competitor. Of course, this movie will never be made because jujitsu is a backwater sport that nobody cares about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but man, it would be sweet if there were actually a movie about this. We've been featured in the New York Times not too long ago. Oh my God. Yes. I, I do find it amusing that you call yourself the most hated man in jujitsu. I'm pretty sure that might be cyborg at the moment. Yeah. Well, uh, we're hated by different sides. Let's just call yeah. it that. <laughs> well, if, if we want to tie this guy up, I guess we could do a quick recap here. In terms of the main things about the Oma Plata that you need to focus on, I think it's probably safe to say that, like you said, you have to have an answer for breaking your opponent's posture and base. You have to have an answer for when they roll. And of course, you need to maintain constant elbow control. Are there any other must-dos for the Omoplata, the, the big takeaways, the, the critical control points that you would say everyone needs to know? Or does that kind of recap the big ones? I would say recognizing the five basic steps towards applying the Omoplata as a submission. So from the, the idea of a trigger position, the spinning to 180 degrees or turning to 180 degrees, the importance of sitting up the importance of breaking his alignment, getting him flat, and then uh, finishing him is uh, becomes quite easy. Recognizing the five to 10 most common counters and having answers for them. Maintaining elbow control is huge. Recognizing the sitting on the shoulder position and ways to move into that and ways to move out of that and ways to you know get back to omoplata or even just to stabilize top control in one form or another, recognizing its connection to other submissions. I mean, the simplest one there is the triangle, right? The omoplata and the triangle go together really smoothly. It goes together with a ton of submissions, but you can't, in my opinion, really do the triangle choke without the omoplata. And it's even harder to do the omoplata without the triangle choke. Those two go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And so- If you can get to that level of sort of back and forth between submissions, connecting, say, the omoplata to the leg lock game, or connecting the omoplata to the armbar, the various, you know, going from armbars to omoplatas, going from omoplatas to armbars, then you're very well on your way to having a system around it. And it, it ultimately is a system. It's not just a technique that you learn. It is one of the core techniques. And I'll, I'll stand by the claim that it's the most versatile submission in jiu-jitsu, with the Kimura probably being a close second. And I'm sure Kimura specialists would argue the other way, but that's fine. Mm-hmm. We're we're both agreeing that it's uh, it's it connects positions, it connects submissions in a way that, I don't know, the, the rear naked choke, which is an amazing technique, doesn't really connect <laughs> to, uh, you know, not too many people are banning rear naked chokes or... I started going yeah. for rear naked choke, and then I ended up in a in a reverse heel hook. You, you hear that a lot less often than I started in the omoplata and I finished with an armbar. Well, the power of both the Kimura and the omoplata, they're effectively doing the same thing. You're establishing mm-hmm. an internal rotation where you're taking the person's arm and you're twisting it behind their back. And, and yep. I think that's the common thread that ties these together. The reason why I don't think you see a lot of like an armbar trap to the same extent that you see a Kimura trap is because... It is much more natural for the arm to flex in and out of the bicep 
So it's hard to take an arm bar and really use that as a lever to to rotate your opponent around in advanced positions. It can be done, but usually speaking, by that point, you've already got the arm bar and you're just trying to get to a more dominant yeah. variant of it. Whereas with the Kimura and the Omoplata, that internal rotational control that you've got on your opponent's arm, it doesn't matter how big or strong they are. It's such an unnatural motion for the body to twist your arm behind your back that where you go, they have to follow. And it just opens up this avenue of continually worsening options for your opponent if you can just keep the trap going. And I think that, yeah, thinking of the Omoplata as a system, much in the same way that we now think of the Kimura as a system, is usually the main difference between being mediocre to poor at the Omoplata versus really featuring that as part of your game and having a lot of luck with it. Yeah, I I would agree with that 100%. I guess other things to talk about, we talked about the importance of knowing the predictable responses to these moves with pretty much any submission. It's very hard to actually close the door on it unless you have answers for everything your opponent could do. Of course, there's the the traditional forward roll somersault. There's the inside roll that we talked about. Your opponent might just sit there and turtle. (laughs) Um, They might get up and kneel on you. They might just stand up completely. They might try to run away, which is actually quite effective. They might hop over or cartwheel. Are there any other common things that can happen, or is that kind of the the list of things that your opponent is likely to do when you enter into the sequence? I think that's certainly the most common set of reactions. I'd say a few other options that are earlier in the sequence that you need to know an answer to is sometimes when you're going for the omoplata, your opponent will try to hang onto your legs and basically keep your legs. Your... They'll try to keep the trap open. Yeah. Yeah, we'll try and keep that buried under his body. It's not yeah. an answer at all if you know what the right response is. In fact, it, it opens up the whole monoplata game and it's, it's, it's actually one of the worst things that you can do. But if you don't know what the answer is, it's incredibly frustrating because you can't pull your legs out. Mm-hmm. I, I think also knowing, having a, a series of answers to when the guy won't let you sit up, when the guy's driving backwards into you is, uh, and, and there's a various ways in which he can be driving backwards into you. Again, it's reasonably easy to move from there, you know, to, to either flatten them out or to do a backward somersault or to move into a reverse crucifix position. But if you don't know those answers, if you don't sort of recognize the guy sits up and tries to drive back into you, if you don't recognize that as a distinct defense, as a distinct, call it a counter, then you won't have the incentive to develop recounters, you know, ways to counter the counter. I think those are the major responses, and it's all in 80-20, right? Jiu-Jitsu is a game of 80-20. We are going to try and take the most common, the, the counters that we run into 80% of the time and spend most of our time uh, working on those, All right, We should dedicate most of our training time to the most common counters, unless you're specifically training for one opponent, right? Okay, this guy is crazy flexible, so now I need to work on finishing the omoplata against somebody who's insanely flexible or transitioning out of the omoplata into, I don't know, the back so I can choke him mm-hmm. instead. Well, honestly, the, the flexibility is where the pro wrestling stuff comes into play, in my opinion. I mean, if you are 
if you're locked someone in an omoplata and you know they're not going to get out but they're so flexible they weren't tap that's when you can start reefing on their neck or you can mm. go for the far arm as well and you can yep. do um we did an episode with drew weatherhead a while back and he was talking about the variants of the crucifix the omoplata can be a lot like a crucifix if you are attacking if you're omoplata in one arm and your opponent just won't give up you just reach around and you attack the other arm as well and you can arm splay him you can double attack both arms at the same time very few people are flexible enough to survive that and hopefully somebody's there with a camera or a, a phone <laughs> <laughs> because that photo's going on your is going to become your avatar for life yep 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 absolutely well stefan you had mentioned that you've got an omoplata instructional in the works i don't think that it's live yet but maybe you could help people keep an eye on it do you have an idea of how people can find it when the time comes to grab it well hopefully it'll be out by the end of november but i mean i i tend to overwork these things. I don't just, you know, film these things and then release them right away. So there's a ton of editing and annotation and in some cases, refilming that goes on. I'm hoping it'll be live by the end of November. I'll be putting the information on uh, grapplearts.com slash omoplata, O-M-O-P-L-A-T-A, all one word. And uh, now that we've talked about this, I'll put something on that page right away so people can get an idea of what we'll be covering. You've made a commitment now. You can't yeah. back out now. It's too late. Well, I think there's a real power in telling people that you're going to do something <laughs> out loud because then it forces you to do it. Uh, that's, a, that's been a constant in my life. You know, it, it is, you know, to go back to uh, something I did a couple of years ago, you know, I was, there's a reason that I was telling people that I was going to do a big solo canoe trip. And I think I did that as well in my very first solo canoe trip. I told everyone I knew just because it would make it harder to back out. Right? You've, you've kind of, people talk about, oh, you know, don't bow to social pressure. And, and that's true. It's your life. You lead it how you want. That being said, you can use social pressure to force you to do things that you want to yeah. do. So... There's a term for that. It's called a Ulysses contract. It's where you basically lock yourself into a commitment because you are well aware that your future self may be less motivated to do what you want to do than your present self, right? So if there's something that you- Why is that called a Ulysses contract? I'm familiar with the story of Ulysses. I just can't remember. It's a parable of the story of Ulysses and how he wanted to hear the siren song. And so he had the sailors oh, nice. tie him to the raft and they all plugged their ears and he didn't so that he could hear the song because he knew that if he could hear the song, he would want to jump overboard and go to the siren. So he had them- tie them you basically had his people tie him down so that he could force the the outcome in the future that he wanted it's something that i i learned about from annie duke's book thinking in bets really awesome book if you want to learn about decision making and the way that we fuck ourselves when it comes to how we make decisions <laughs> very very interesting read so it's called a ulysses contract something that i actually have been meaning to talk about on the show because it's a great way to lock yourself into a commitment if you have motivation problems create situations where the commitment itself is unavoidable right it's it's like how for example if you send have out invitations to your wedding <laughs> so you, so you well, have to go it's a real thing, right? I mean, like Steve Jobs announced the iPhone before he even had the trademark on the name, the iPhone, right? In fact, someone else had the trademark at the time. It's a very common thing. It's similar to how if you have problems with junk food, the best way to deal with that is just not to let the junk food in your house in the first place. Always easier than trying to will yourself into not eating it when your house is full of potato chips. So it's a very, very powerful mental model that you can apply across the board. So yes, anyway, I also do appreciate the fact that you edit these things so thoroughly and don't just let some idiot ramble for 10 hours and then just shit out a hundred instructionals like other people who I will not bring up. 
you know, they, they do that. But your stuff is always very thoroughly cleaned up and edited and more accessible, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll be sure that your royalty check is in the mail. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, uh, Stefan, of course, I think everyone knows how to find you. Grapplearts.com. Any other things that you want to plug before we let you go? No, I think that's the next big thing. I, it's my favorite submission. It's one that I've been studying intensively for years, possibly decades. And so I think it was really interesting to go and do a super deep dive into it and find out that although I thought I knew this technique pretty well, and I I would argue that I that I did, that there was still a whole lot more to learn. And I'm looking forward to sharing that. Yeah, I would I would argue that out of the major submissions, the Omoplata is probably one of the most underdeveloped and has so much potential beyond what most people recognize with what is considered to be a classic old school submission. Well, as shown, we're just going on and on here, and hopefully uh, that's okay. Just look at the number of submissions that have the word plata, right? Monoplata, yeah. you know, uh, brado plata, this, that plata, you know, pretzel plata. It's such a versatile position, and there's so many variations of it. Now, in order to uh, or reverse omoplata, that's another one that you know, probably the most dangerous of the variations that I can think of off the top of my head. But all of them rely on having the basic understanding of the omoplata and realizing how that hooks together. Actually, that's probably not true for the reverse omoplata. I think the main reason to re- learn the reverse omoplata, if you're an omoplata specialist, is just so that you're not completely blindsided by this technique. You can't be an omoplata specialist without at least knowing what a reverse omoplata is. But everything that you said about being able to apply it safely and the difficulty of being able to sense what your opponent's limits of his flexibility are through your legs is magnified tenfold through by the uh, the reverse omoplata. Interesting, interesting. I'll have to look into this more. I'm actually not very fluent with the reverse omoplata. It's the technique that first burst onto public consciousness when Salo Hibero basically ripped somebody's shoulder off with it in a no-gi tournament. Just if you're turtled and I'm kneeling beside you and you take, say, your left arm, which is the arm closest to us, and you wrap it backwards around my right thigh for some reason, which people do. They shouldn't, but they do. Mm -hmm. If you then put your head to the outside and do a rolling somersault, it basically pulls your arm into a kimura. Oh, oh, the, the yeah, that's that's a very old school technique. I mean, yeah. that's that's one I haven't thought about in a long time. I always I'm hesitant to do a lot of rolling maneuvers simply because I prefer to I find that if I can halt movements for me personally, it just reduces variability and makes things more predictable. But I know that there's people out there that I would consider to be uh, movement specialists. And a- actually, I'm uh, rolling with Margot Ciccarelli tomorrow. I fully expect her to beat my ass just by jumping around and doing hopscotch mm. on top of me. So I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> well, you, you see it a lot more in like Sambo competition or mm-hmm. even in judo competition because you have reasonably limited time on the ground. It's just a rule system incentivizes you know people ending up on their hands and knees and then giving you the opportunity to to feed that arm into position and then if you just roll dynamically you win the match but it's it's a it's a dangerous one i don't think my personal take is you have absolutely no right to work the reverse omoplata until you have the body awareness and the wherewithal to do a forward somersault and then stop on your sh- stop halfway through it on your shoulders with your legs pointing at the ceiling and basically do a modified shoulder stand. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be screwing around with it. You just don't have the body control to do this technique safely. 
So I, I, I did include it in the Omoplata instructional just, you know, so that people know what it is. But I'm very explicit about like, and I, and I show what you should be able to do and say, if you can't do this, don't screw around with this because you will destroy your training partner's shoulder. And it's also important to show stuff like that because you don't want to get caught in it yourself. If nothing else, you need to learn stuff so that you know how not to have it done to you, even if it's exactly. something that you're not interested in. This is something that people, I think, often get mixed up about jujitsu is they feel this this pressure that they need to learn and master everything, which simply is not possible. No. But at the bare minimum, you need to at least know how to steer out of the things you don't yep. want to do and back into the things that you do want to do. Yeah. So anyway, amazing chat, Stefan. Thank you so much for coming by. I am really looking forward to this Omoplata instructional. It's been a long time since I've brushed up on this stuff. And like you, it is perhaps one of my favorite submissions in the sport. Well, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. And I look forward to our chats all the time. Awesome. And of course, to I guess I can plug my stuff now. If anyone out there wants to get in on the full BJJ Mental Models program, you can check out BJJ Mental Models Premium. The way you do that is you go to premium.bjjmentalmodels.com. There's a ton of extra stuff there. If you like what we do here on the podcast, but you're interested in things that are more structured into courseware type structures and deeper dives, that's the place to go. We've also got an amazing community and uh, we also do rolling footage reviews. You. So if you've ever wanted to know how all of the stuff we discuss here applies to what you're doing, you can just send me your videos and I would be happy to tell you myself. So again, the way to check that out, premium.bjjmentalmodels.com, free trial. So please do take a look and let me know what you think. Stefan, again, I always greatly appreciate you ha having you come by here. So thanks again for hanging out and talking shop with us. This was a good one. My pleasure, Steve. And thank you for everything that you do. You too, buddy. And to all of the listeners out there, thanks to you as well. And we'll talk to you next week. 